Well, fellas, it's almost here, and you don't need to thank me. This is a community service. Valentine's Day is on the 14th of February. There's some uh, pretty blank looks from some wives uh, right there. Now, uh, if you're married, uh, you, you shouldn't be doing this to anyone other than your wife, but some of you may have done this in the past, and hopefully it does happen between you and your spouse every now and then, that you actually go out on a date. There was, I was reading a, a newspaper article or a news article, I should say, um, where uh, someone had actually encouraged people to ask their Valentine's date out. It was, uh, it was really suggesting to the, to the ladies that they could ask the person out that they liked. Um, and uh, they, they posted their screen captures, uh, basically, of the responses to that. You, you had the first one here. Um, hey, I've had a crush on you for a while now. Would you like to go on a date with me on Valentine's? If you insist. All right, that, that's, that's okay. That's a, that's a start. This one here, oh really, uh, would, will you be my Valentine this year, we can go on a date? Oh, I'd love to, that's a bit better, isn't it? Um, this one here, uh, morning, next Thursday, let's go on a date, be my Valentine. Morning Fee, I've been thinking of many ways to ask you uh, this all week, you never cease to surprise me, I'd really like that, and since you did the asking, I'll orchestrate the date. Oh, that's, that's pretty good, right? Is anyone, any ladies here thinking that we're doing pretty well so far? And then this one, will you be my valentine? I'd rather be in the middle of Syria with no access to food or water. <laughs> one, uh, one legend about Valentine's Day apparently uh, is connected to, to the Catholic Church. That there was a, uh, a St. Valentine who was a priest who served during the 3rd century in Rome and Emperor Claudius II decided single men made better soldiers than married men with kids. So he said you're not allowed to be married. So there was this St. Valentine that went around secretly, secretly marrying uh, soldiers in the army and ended up getting killed for it. Uh, that's, that's one supposed uh, kind of legend or, or kind of root for uh, Valentine's Day. But it raises, doesn't it, the, uh, the whole reality of what we think about when we think about love. So many uses of that word, right? I love my wife. I love my ice cream. <laughs> and we mean two different things. And if you don't, you need help. All right? <laughs> Because you need to be meaning two different things when you talk about loving an ice cream and loving a wife. We talk about love at first sight. Sometimes people say, I love you, when sometimes I suspect they mean I lust you. <laughs> I just want you and I don't actually love you. I just want you because I love me and I love hedonism. I love pleasure. I mean, there's so many different uses of the word love. In fact, I got this email from Qantas Frequent Flyers this week and you probably can't quite see it, but the uh, subject in this email was last chance to fall in love with online mall offers. I mean, it's meant to be Valentine's Day, right? You're meant to love someone else and now Qantas are kind of jumping on that bandwagon and saying, hey, love, love our malls. <laughs> you know, it's such a, a messy uh, the usage of love. The word love is such a messy uh, reality in our day. You know, some people have uh, done a lot of work uh, just kind of pairing out the difference between, uh, between different kinds of loves. Has anyone here read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis? A couple of you. So there's a book called The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis where he kind of distinguishes between different types of love. And I think that you need to do that. I mean, it's not uncommon in the English language that we have a word that we use for multiple things, but we mean different things uh, when we use it. And love's one of those. So he, um, he talked about the Greek understanding of, of, uh, of love. He talked about storge love, uh, philia love, eros love. So storge love is kind of love through familiarity. It's kind of families. It's parents' love for children. There's a likeness in the way that you relate. Philia love is kind of a love between friends, sharing common values, interests, experiences. Eros, you can probably work that one out. Eros is romantic love. Uh, between the sexes, sexual love, and uh, agape love, which uh, God has the market on agape love, doesn't he? Agape love is the love of God for man, unrelated to circumstances. It's unconditional. You know, we could actually today get into all these different little meanings of love, but I don't think we need to today. 
We don't need to know the meanings of words to understand the nature of the love that God wants husbands to have for wives. So today, it's your turn, gentlemen. All right? And you had a bit of a turn last week, but this is a, more, a bigger turn this week. All right? Last week, uh, we're working through uh, Ephesians at the moment. Last week, we talked about wives submitting to their husbands. So you can go back and listen to that online if you want to um, check that one out. Today, we're looking at uh, the good order of the household. And that's what I talked about last week, that Paul's setting up a household code, like how do the households run so that they run well. So in a house, you'd have parents, husbands and wives, children and slaves. So you can see Paul actually goes through that framework in Ephesians 5 and talks about how parents and children need to relate, how husbands and wives need to relate to each other and how slaves need to relate in the context of a household because they would all be in the same household. So if you've got your Bibles there, I'd love for you to open those up to Ephesians chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, uh, just go to the front. There's a, uh, there's a contents page. Find the book of Ephesians and the number there. Big numbers in the Bible of the chapters are small numbers of the verses. We're going to go to Ephesians 5. We're going to read verse 25 to 27. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. All right. Wives, if you thought your job was tough to submit, this is like off the charts. All right. It's way easier to submit than to love like Christ loved the church. Is anyone here with, anyone with me on that? It just is. It's a massive, massive call. You know, husbands need to love, not just any kind of love, but to love as Christ loves the church. And I want to say this to you, that in the Greco-Roman world, wives had obligations to their husbands, but officially husbands didn't have any obligations to their wives. So this is a massive kind of cultural shift that Paul's kind of laying out here, right? He's not just saying that wives have got an obligation to their husbands to submit. He's now saying, no, husbands need to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Now, do you know what this is like saying? This is like saying, go and play basketball like Steph Curry. Tell me, you go, who's Steph Curry? All right, try this. Go and play halfback like Jonathan Thurston. This is what, this is what Paul's saying, right? It's like you take just a week... Fallen, male, he's married, and God's going, here's what you need to do. Go and bowl like Mitchell Stark. <laughs> you with me? Go and surf a surfboard like Stephanie Gilmore. And we all sit here and we just go, yeah, sure. No, that's fine. Yeah, we can do that. That's no dramas. Not. <laughs> it's a massive call. I mean, in one word last week it was wives submit. This week it's husbands love. And Paul spends a lot of time talking about husbands, how husbands need to love their wives. Here's where we're going today. I'm going to bring out four things today. Husbands love like God. Husbands love your wives to death. Husbands love your wives exclusively. And husbands make her beautiful with your love. Number one. Husbands love like God. Let's just go back. This is Ephesians 5.25. Husbands love your wives as Christ love the church god's call for you gentlemen is to image god in the way that you lead your families to image god and to reflect him in the way that you love your wives and god's call for you is to imitate him in the way that he loves and here's the bottom line when when jesus died for the church he didn't hesitate when he was in the garden he knew the weight of it but he didn't hesitate right so god if there's another way let there be another way, but I'll do whatever you want me to do. And that was the plan. The plan was, let's go and do this. And Jesus went and he didn't. He did it. See, God sets the standard for the way that husbands ought to love their wives. Now, here's what I just want to throw out at this point in time. I think people imitate other people regularly. And some of you might go, 
Okay, so I've got to imitate God. And I would say to you, well, you imitate someone in your love probably quite regularly. Anyway, I mean, who knows this? Who knows you can get in a tough time in life and what do you do? You think about one of your heroes and what they would do in that time, right? You get fined by the police for speeding and you remember that person who was a leader over you that got fined for speeding as well. Do you know what I mean? And you're just kind of making that comparison all the time. Who knows that when it comes to loving and when it comes to loving in the context of marriage, we imitate what we see around us. I think we imitate by default. And I think one of the things here is not that you just need to start imitating someone. I think what Paul's really saying in Ephesians 5 is imitate God in the way that you love husbands. Let me give you some uh, examples of some things that I think that we imitate when it comes to how we do love in the context of marriage. TV, don't we? I mean, TV normalises a lot of stuff for us. We watch TV, we watch sitcoms on TV, we, we, we just see the way that they do stuff. We even watch news reports, and most of the time news reports are bad news reports. Not that many people are talking about really happy marriages where people give themselves to each other and love each other really well. Have you noticed that? doesn't make the news. <laughs> it's not even that interesting most of the time on TV. People just want to see conflict. You've got this really stupid, idiotic, dumb show called... What am I talking about? Married at First Sight. Is that not just the most evil thing that's ever existed? Almost. That's probably a bit of a, an overstatement. It's a hyperbole, right? Isn't it, is anyone with me on that? It's like, yeah, let's just stick two people together. I mean, it's an arranged marriage, but then it's not a marriage and there, there's sex and there's... Uh, hey. What about movies? I bet you that all of us at some level when we sit and we watch TV, we watch movies, we watch relationships going on and we imitate those a little bit. Uh, Ange and I are massively into uh, This Is Us at the moment, um, which is a TV show. Uh, it's only in its second season, but it's, got, it's probably got the, the strongest, most compelling example of a, a fallen male, but a, a, a male is just playing a really good leadership, loving kind of role in his family. And it's, it's unusual. You just don't see that very much. Here's another... Um, is another uh, place where you'll imitate things, your parents. All right? You do that with parenting. I think you do it with, uh, in terms of your parents' marriage. I mean, that at some level, it kind of normalises things for you. Maybe things in your parents' marriage are, are significantly abnormal, but that, that's something that kind of impacts the way they operate. Now, sometimes people can imitate other people around the place that look like they've got a great marriage. Isn't this... Uh, the lies, like you look around at people and you just go, they are having like the most awesomest marriage right now. And what you don't really know is they've probably got a whole basket of problems similar to the problems that you've got. All right? Because here's the thing, marriage is just a couple of sinners trying to get on together. A couple of sinners who are trying to get on together who have been discipled by their families and their history and they're both different. So that's just going to have its struggles at times. But who knows, sometimes, especially when you're really struggling, you can look to people who you think have a good marriage. And I think that there are marriages that are travelling better than other ones. And I think every marriage has times when it travels better than other marriages, than other times in the marriage. But you need to be careful because envy can be a real problem. All right? And, and there's, I think, can I just say this? I think, um, you can tell me if I can or can't after I say it. Um, because of the nature of two unique people getting married, every marriage is going to be a bit weird. Like, it's just going to be a bit weird. And what I mean by that is it's just going to be unique to the two people who are in it. I mean, there's some, there's some ground-level kind of principles that are going to operate in every relationship, absolutely, all right? But you don't just kind of take a cookie-cutter thing and find someone that you think is doing it really well and just go, if I do exactly what they're doing in our marriage, we'll be fine. I have a great marriage. And I just go, well, they're two completely different people to you. Some people might be sitting here today and just going, yeah, when it comes to imitating uh, love, um, I just go with what I think. 
Yeah, that's going to work really well. Just try that one for a while. Now that one's going to work really well for you because there's going to be lots of times where you, you, you're going to need help. You're going to need input about how to, how to love well. What about this one? Pornography. That, that informs the way that people think about love, isn't it? It informs the way that people think about love in the context of marriage and it's not just a male problem. I mean, think about the effect of uh, pornography on marriage and love in the last 30 years. I mean, there's some really significant bracket creep that's actually going on within television ratings and movie ratings. I mean, that's just an example of it. Here's the thing, when pornography is involved, there's always love somewhere, but it's not normally love for your wife. It's love for yourself or it's love for pleasure. It's a bankrupt love. Let me tell you about Jesus' love for the church. This is the one you're meant to imitate. Who's with me on that? It's hot, right? But let's just get into it. This is the love we need to imitate. Uh, Let me tell you about Jesus and the church. When Jesus' people are messy, he cleans them. That's some sweet love, right? When Jesus' people desert Jesus, he stays with them. When Jesus' people are lost, He finds them. When Jesus' people, the church, want to take his life, he gives his life. He sacrifices himself for the good of his own people. That's what Jesus does, right? And this is the kind of love that God's calling all of us, but specifically today, husbands, this is what we have to deliver on. (laughs) This is what God calls us to deliver on. Husbands, love like God. Husbands, love your wife to death. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now listen, how much time have we got as soon as we start thinking about the centrality of self-sacrifice in genuine, deep, amazing love? All right, let's just think about movies for a minute. All right? This is like, I want to suggest to you this morning that self-sacrifice to love someone else is part of the fabric of the universe and everyone instinctively knows it. So if you're not a Christian here today, I want to say to you, no one ever looks at someone giving their life for someone else because they love them and says they're doing an evil thing, do they? No one ever says that. No one ever says that it's even a neutral thing. Everyone instinctively knows that that is a good thing to do. It's a good thing to sacrifice yourself for someone else let's go titanic jack and rose only one person can fit on the floating door and what's the uh, what's the image that you have at the end of that is a frozen jack disappearing into the darkness of the water it's a good thing is anyone with me that is a good thing to do that for her have you seen i am legend Right at the end of the movie, Will Smith blows himself up with a grenade so that two people could escape. Saving Private Ryan. Tom Hanks plays Captain Miller, who's the head of a group of soldiers that go in to rescue a soldier. And he dies in the process. Boromir, in Lord of the Rings, he jumps in and tries to fend off the orcs and save Merry and Pippin, but ends up falling and failing and dying in the process. The Lego movie. Emmett jumps off with the battery strapped to him. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? He's sacrificed. You don't. It's a whole bunch of you going, I don't watch Lego movies. Here's another one. Big Hero 6. Baymax on the right gives his life to save people. See, this is just it. This is just how it is. Self-sacrifice is part, an integral part of genuine, deep love. MTV News said this, self-sacrifice in film has forever been the trait of a character's stoicism, selflessness and passion for the greater good. Folks, what I want to suggest to you is self-sacrifice doesn't just come up regularly because it's a good idea. It comes up because it's part of the fabric of the universe. That's how the universe works. It's just how it 
works. It's a mega theme for the created world. You know why it's a mega theme for the created world? It's because God is central to the world and that's what he does. He gives his life in love for you. And I think everyone knows this. Now, I, I don't fully agree with this notion like 100, 100%, right? But I think it's mostly true that something's not love if you're getting something out of it, all right? Like if you do something just so that you can get something out of it, it's probably not going to qualify as love, all right? So, gentlemen, if you go home and you buy your wife a toolbox, it's probably not loving, all right, unless she loves working in the shed or a cordless drill or an Xbox or, or this one, an ironing board. <laughs> unless wives are into that stuff. It, it, do you get that? If we give a gift and it's like, I'm getting something out of giving you this gift, it almost kind of neutralizes the love built within it. Because putting away our own desires for the sake of someone else is central to loving them. And I want to, um, I want to just talk for a minute about something. We've got some money here. And it's not mine. I, uh, I, Dave Burden gave it to me, actually. I said, have you got money? Can I have some money? And I'll give it back. And he was smiling when I said that. Let me just illustrate it this way, all right? If, if money, and it doesn't, right? But if money represented life, right? One of the things that I think that happens when people are selfish is they, they grab at things to try and get life. They get life to... They're trying to make life work the way they want it to work and they kind of, there you go, that wasn't meant to happen. But they grab at things. <laughs> now I'm, now I'm going to be arrested. But they grab at things because they, they, they're grabbing it and pulling into themselves and trying to make their life roll the way they want it to roll. But in a strange kind of way, if you, if you imagine a movie where, and you've seen movies like this where people go to grab something and their hand goes through it and they miss it or the thing kind of dissolves just as they touch it, this is what life is like. And I think that the part of the problem with the universe, <laughs> there's lots of problems with it, but part of the problems with the universe and with humanity is that we grab at things and we get selfish and the things that we grab at, we don't actually ever get to quite get them. We just, and we're trying to grab them and we're trying to get them for ourselves so life goes well for us. Now, can you just go in your Bibles right, to, right back to the beginning of Genesis? Genesis chapter 4. I want you to kind of hang with me as we do this. Genesis chapter 4. This is the, uh, the Bible's rendition of the first murder. Genesis 4, just going to start at verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Listen to this, and we're not told why, but the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. We don't know why. God disliked one, he didn't like the other. Okay, Listen to what happened. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And look what happens in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now here's the thing. I think what selfishness does is selfishness tries to snatch the life away from other people and other things. It's, like, it's almost like a gathering and a pulling in, trying to pull in life so that your life goes the way that you want it to be and it's as happy as you want it to be. Now, do you know what the problem with it is? Is that every single time that you do that, and here we go, I'm just going to use this, you break it. You break the life and it doesn't work for you. Do you see that? 
That, that's the foundation of the universe. The foundation of the universe is when you get selfish, when you love yourself, when you worship yourself and you go grasping at things to make life be and operate the way that you want it to be, you break the life that you're trying to get your hands on. Is it, are you with me on that? Is it, am I confusing anyone? You just do. And this, I think, is what's going on for Cain here, is he's breaking life. He's breaking the life of his brother in his attempt to grasp onto something that he desperately wants. Now this is, I think this is really significant and it's very, very deep. It's a deep reality in the universe. Because what you've actually got here is selfishness is actually at odds with the ethic of the whole universe. And here's the bottom line, and I say this to husbands, if you are selfish in your marriage and you're focused on getting what you want out of your marriage and grasping the life that you want to get out of your marriage, you're going to wreck your wife and you'll wreck yourself. This is how it works. And, and there's a life that selflessness gives that is not going to happen in your marriage because you're all the time kind of grasping and trying to get stuff off of her. You can't get more by taking it. You can't get more life by taking it. You get more life by it being given to you. You can't get more human by grasping at it for yourself. You know how you get more human and you get more alive? You get more human, you get more alive by dying. Matthew 16, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. You grasp at it, you want to hoard it for yourself and you lose it. You kill it and you wreck it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. Folks, this is the underlying ethic of the whole universe. Is that death to self brings life, but selfishness brings death and it breaks things. I mean, look at Jesus, right? Life comes out of death. He offers himself and gives his life up. And look at the amazing life that comes out of him giving up his life. So I want to say to you, gentlemen, and uh, I'm not making any promises about how your marriage is going to roll. But I want to say this to you this morning. The kind of wife that you want in your marriage is going to come from you dying to yourself. Do you hear me? The kind of wife that you really want in your marriage is going to come from you dying to yourself. Now, don't get weird on me now, gentlemen. I'm not talking about physicality. I'm talking about everything. Now, there's, a, there's a oneness in marriage. The kind of knitting, the deep intermingling of souls, the knitting of souls, the communion. <laughs> That's amazing incredible you know that the two becoming one thing you know sometimes I, I mean I, I reasonably regularly do premarital counseling with engaged couples and that's a really really enjoyable thing to do and one of the things that I've noticed that uh, people say to newly engaged couples and I think they're just trying to help people to be wise or something. I don't know what they're doing, but often people who I do premarital counselling with say this, but a lot of people have told us that marriage is really, really hard. And I find that a bit sad. Like, I think that's a sad thing when you have a premarital counselling situation and people are saying, probably the lion's share of advice that we've had is that marriage is really hard. Now, here's the thing. Of course it's hard, all right? Of course it is. Of course it's going to be hard when you've got two sinners. Of course it's going to be hard when you've got two people discipled by their history. Of course, of course, of course. But I just want to say, and I regularly say this to premarital couples, this is going to be the most amazing thing for you. There is a level of communion and relationship and oneness that you can have in your marriage that is, just blows your brain. I mean, I think back to before I got married and I... When I was thinking about love, I was thinking a duck dive into a thimble, all right? And when I got into marriage, it was like a scuba dive in the Pacific. Is anyone with me? That's what it was. It's like, man, this thing, this love thing and this two becoming one thing, and of course it's hard, and of course people sin against each other, and of course there's stuff that you need to work through. 
But the, the end objective and the goal is this sense of oneness in the middle of that that is absolutely amazing. And I want to say to you this morning, husbands, the more that you die to yourself in your marriage, the more your wife will live and become something great, <laughs> something grand. Is anyone with me on this? Hopefully there's some wives with me on this. See, it's always the way that it works. It always, 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 always works like that. That death produces life. And not you killing someone else. You dying to yourself always produces life. It's the way that it works. You can't take life from someone else. You have to receive it. You can't take life. You have to give it. And we give life to people. We give lives, husbands, to our wives when we die to ourselves in our love for our wife. Check this out. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 12. He's not specifically speaking about marriage at this point. But notice this dynamic going on of dying producing life. We're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Listen to this, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now you don't even need the Bible to know this. If you work in a workplace, if you've got friends and they are relentlessly unselfish people, you just know that what's happening is they're creating life all over the place. Why? Because that's how God works. Because that's how the fabric of the whole universe works. Now you can go back if you want to and snatch and wreck stuff and not create life. But let's not do that. Let's do something good. Amen? Let's do something good. Let's be unselfish people who die to self in our love for other people. All right. Three, husbands, love your wife exclusively. Come back with me to uh, Ephesians, Ephesians 5 there. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to whoever wants her. It doesn't say that, right? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, exclusivity, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God is not going to have a commitment ceremony <laughs> like marriage at married at first sight, okay? God is committed to his people. He's committed to you. He's not looking around. He's not scoping out the other options that are out there for him. He's committed to you. And you know what he's done is he's actually died on the cross for you to make you a person and to make you a people as the church who's committed to him. There's no hint in this text, verse 25 to 27, of any unfaithfulness from God or from the church. God's preparing the church for himself. He's made her holy and without blemish and pure. And the, the idea of holiness is about being set apart. It's like the bride's showing up on the wedding day, not to marry the best man like what happened to Samson, all right? The bride's showing up on the wedding day. She's committed. She's set apart for the groom, and the groom's set apart for her. So husbands, how are you going to love like God? You're going to love like God by being faithful and having an exclusive relationship with your wife. That's normal. <laughs> That's normal. Are you doing okay? Do we need to have a drinks break or something? Because maybe I'm killing you today. Are you okay? You're right. Okay. Folks, this is what is normal. The love of God is that we would be his alone. It's exclusivity. The love of a husband to a wife is an exclusive love. You need to be that for your wives, gentlemen. I read a newspaper article when the head of uh, Playboy, Hugh Hefner, died that said that he... Uh, it was reported to have had sex with a thousand women as though it's some kind of feat to do that. 
like he's the guy getting it done. We should all be like you, not. This is a weird thing to say, and I hope that you forgive me if it kind of is a bit jarring for you, but you know what I reckon is better? It would have been better for Hugh Hefner to have had two becoming one consensual, loving, marital intimacy with the same woman a thousand times. You with me? That would have been better. And in fact, that's a lot harder. All right? Because, because it's reliant upon relationship. It's reliant upon working things through. It's reliant upon walking together in that and staying close to one another. You know, one of the things I think is a natural kind of outworking of a deepening of love, in a sense, is almost a if there's such a thing, it's probably even dangerous to say this, but it's almost like a, a deepening of exclusivity in a sense. You know, like the more you, you, you're in love with your wife, the more the thought of them even being with someone before you got married and holding their hand is, is repulsive to you. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a, in a possessive kind of way. We're not, we're not ever wanting to possess another person in an ownership sense. But there's something about a deep love for each other that wants to share deeply in the other person's experience and it just and it becomes tighter and tighter in scientific american there was an article back in 2009 uh, and i'll just read you a section out of it uh, psychologist john manor of uh, florida state university and his colleagues flashed pictures of faces on a computer screen for half a second following it immediately with a square or circle which participants had to identify by pushing the correct button. Earlier research using this method has found that it takes longer for viewers to shift their attention away from attractive faces of the opposite sex. Listen to what he did. Manor, however, took subjects who were married or living together monogamously and asked half of them to write about feelings of love for their partner and the other half to write about a happy experience. Those who wrote about love actually turned their attention away from attractive members of the opposite sex even more quickly than they, had, than they looked away from average-looking people. Subjects who wrote about being happy, however, remained as distracted by a pretty face as ever. I mean, just straight off the, off the bat, I'd, I'm not that surprised by that. All right? Like, if you're thinking about happiness and your own happiness... His results are not that surprising. But the, the, the flip side, I think, is, is so true. Like the, there's, there's a nature about loving someone that builds into greater and greater exclusivity. And I, I, I hesitate to say that because I think that exclusivity is the foundation and the only foundation for marriage. It always has to be there. It always has to be there. And great damage is done to the relationship when it's not exclusive and I'll probably I'm just going to make a couple of application points but I do want to acknowledge at this point that uh, this can be really difficult because I don't think exclusivity in marriages as simple as it is conceptually doesn't always play out that way for people and there's some very painful realities. And I don't want you to think for a moment that I don't consider those painful realities and the way people have been hurt by lack of exclusivity. There's stories about that everywhere. I'm just saying that is not the way that God wants it to roll. And I'm just saying thank you, Jesus, for inspiring Paul to write in Ephesians 5 that we need to love exclusively like God loves the church. So husbands, don't be looking at other women. Husbands, don't be looking at porn. Husbands, don't be making emotional connections with other women. Husbands, skip the sex scene in the movie. Husbands, stop daydreaming. Some things are just dumb to do. <laughs> and not being committed 100% to your wife, gentlemen, is a dumb thing to do. All right? So don't be stupid. I'm not calling you stupid. I'm just saying don't be stupid. 
Number four, husbands, make her beautiful with your love. I read a little bit of this guy's book. Uh, I think anyone whose name is Fritz, you should just read their book or part of it. Uh, Fritz de Lang uh, wrote a book called Loving Later in Life and in it there's this lovely little section he wrote, The pleasure of dwelling in the presence of old people, contemplating their faces and discovering the beauty in them is impossible without loving them. Listen to this, beauty needs love and love inevitably makes someone beautiful. The incarnation of Jesus is the embodiment of his personhood. It's Jesus putting a face on, all right? And faces are about people, right? That's what they are. Faces are about people. And if you only look at the body, that's a whole other thing. That's not about people. That's about something else. And I remember hearing a uh, pastor say years ago that his uh, wisdom to his daughters about how to dress is he, would, he said this to his daughter. He said, you need to dress in such a way that men look at your face. And they deal with you as a person. I think that's so, so wise. Here's the bottom line. You marry a person. You don't marry a body. You marry a person who has a body. And what we're talking about here, and what we're talking about in marriage, is loving a person. Not just loving a body, or not loving a body, or, or loving a, the, pers- the invisible person inside, or not loving them. We're talking about loving the whole thing. And you know what happens when Jesus dies for the church? You can see this in Ephesians 5, right? You know what happens? They, all the blemishes get taken away. They, that's, they are beautiful. They are just incredible. Like, that's what happens to you. Jesus died on the cross for you, and he cleans up all the mess and all the junk, and you, you're sensational. <laughs> you're amazing. You see, God's love for you in the person of Christ creates beauty and splendor within you. He wraps you in a robe of righteousness and purity. He talks about that often. You often see in the scriptures about a royal robe, you know, this beautiful robe being put on us. Now here's the thing. Husbands will never be able to do that. They'll never be able to do that. Husbands, you're kind of off the hook a little bit. Because it's above your pay grade, right? You, you, can't, you can't do what Jesus did there to create beauty and splendor in the church. But let me just double back for a moment and ask you this question. Do you think it's possible that loving someone well could make them more beautiful? Do you know what I reckon? Absolutely. I think there's little kind of residual, kind of leftover little piece. You know, we can't do what Jesus did by dying on the cross and in a justified kind of sense, making someone righteous and right before God in purity. But I do think there's a residual kind of mechanism that kind of goes along with that, which is like you can actually make someone more beautiful and you can bring about changes in someone by the way that you love them. Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever seen someone who's been loved badly and you can tell? <laughs> it's like that person hasn't been loved well. You know, maybe they're a bit weathered, sad, depressed, overweight. You know, some of you might be familiar with uh, attachment theory for kids, like attachment disorder, which is really that Kids who don't get loved well and, and don't have good attachment when they're really young have, have issues with relationships later on. It, it, it just seems like people who haven't been loved well at a really young age are going to find it really hard to... It's going to be hard to love them later on. You know, I mean, I, I've seen it in the school when I worked in the school doing pastoral care. You know, you'll see a kid there who's been treated pretty badly by their dad, but then all of a sudden the dad just throws him a crumb a morsel of something positive, some love, you know, and you can see that they actually change, you know. They stand up straighter, you know, and it's like some of you are going, what are you saying, just made people beautiful on the inside? I said, no, I, I'm just going, I think it affects the outside as well. You know, that, that kid who has been mistreated by his father, he gets loved and his shoulders, he stands up a little bit taller, you know, and all of a sudden he's smiling a little bit more than what he was, you know. 
And he's laughing at a joke that he wasn't laughing at 10 minutes ago because all of a sudden, Dad actually thinks something of me. You know, I think that there's another kind of mechanism in the world whereby love actually makes people beautiful and, and brings about splendor in their lives. And you know what? Science supports what I'm saying <laughs> and what the scriptures say. You know what we know about people who are loved? They're more confident. Well, you think about that. I mean, you don't even need science for that, right? You know it yourself. Like when someone loves you and accepts you, you're just more confident. It's a weird thing. Like when you're not loved and, and you're kind of unloved and you're not accepted, all of a sudden you're kind of insecure. You're not, you're not you anymore. You're not being the person that God made you to be. You're kind of thinking about all these other things that are kind of going on. You know, people who um, are loved well uh, handle the bumps of life better. Hugs, apparently, lower blood pressure. Who knows that's true? I mean, you didn't need science for that, did you? Just know it. You know, there's uh, some research that suggests that married people are more likely to survive cancer. That's in a, in a loving relationship, I should say. Uh, depression scores are better for people in a loving marriage. See, being loved affects all of you, inside and outside. And here's the thing, have you ever seen someone who's been loved well over a long period of time? They're beautiful. Yeah, they, I mean, the, the loving over a long period of time just changes them. And husbands, that would be your objective. I would submit that to you. That would be your objective. Love your wife well over a long period of time and make her beautiful, even more beautiful. Sammy Rhodes, a Christian guy that wrote a book called This Is Awkward, uh, in it he says this, there's no such thing as a bride who isn't beautiful on her wedding day. It's not the dress that makes her beautiful, it's the love of the groom. That's what we spend a lifetime learning to believe as Christians. It's not that our beauty makes God love us, it's his love that makes us beautiful. And God would have you, husbands, I think, be a mini-me version of God <laughs> in the way that you love your wife. All right? Love her. Love her to death. Love her like God. Make her beautiful. So in Valentine's Day, you give something to express your love to someone you really like. That's the deal, right? Roses, chocolates, perfume, new cars. No, kidding on that one. You take someone out on a date, you hang out with them. And I want to just say to you this morning, Jesus does immeasurably better than that. I don't even want to call Jesus dying on the cross. I don't even want to compare that to Valentine's Day. It's not, it's not in the same universe, true? He loves you. And he actually likes you. <laughs> he sings songs about you. Jazz or death metal? I don't know. It could be both. All right, Whatever your taste is, I think he's got the talent for it. He purifies you. And he makes you beautiful. He brings splendor into your life. He gives himself for you. And he gives himself to you. See, that's, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is that you don't just get something from God. The gospel is that you get God. He gives himself to you. And it's, it's in you being connected to him that you get transformed well that's it for the message I might just invite the worship team up because I think uh, today is a really really good time to have communion true isn't that it
You know what communion says in the context of what I've shared today? Is your marriage could be really difficult. It could be really hard and it could have had a whole bunch of really painful things in it. But you have one who's better than your husband at loving you. And he's better than the best husband at loving their wife in this room, if there was one. He's better than the best husband. And this communion is about him giving himself to us. That's what it is. It's, um, it's the ultimate self-sacrifice, isn't it? I mean, Jesus said that his body was going to break like the bread. His blood was going to pour out like the juice in the, in the cups there. You know, this is, this is for anyone who loves him. <laughs> it's not for people who don't love him. It would, I mean, partly it just wouldn't make sense. The other thing is you just want to treat this as a light thing, that God would be broken for you, that he would, in a sense, put a face on and walk around on our planet and then be killed by the people that he came to purify and to beautify. That's, that's the story. If you're not in on that story, you need not take it. But if you're in on that story, you just go, yeah, I, I know it. I know, I know that I know <laughs> that Jesus has changed me and that his love changes me and the way that he broke and gave himself for me has changed me. And it's made me someone that I am didn't think I'd ever be, <laughs> but yet it feels so right because it's, well, I feel like I'm meant to be. And we're on that journey. We're all on that journey together. So I guess I just want to throw out to you. I'll give you a couple of minutes just to, uh, just to pray and to talk to Jesus and make, just prepare your heart, examine your heart to make sure that you're in the right place. We'll come around and hand out uh, communion to you. Maybe if you just hold it all together. So if you just hold the, the, uh, the juice and the, and the bread, we'll uh, take it all together at the conclusion so just just take a few moments to to talk to jesus if you you don't love jesus you could just receive him right now you could say sorry to him for walking away from you you could thank him for dying for you on the cross and invite him into your life you could do that right now and if you do that right now take communion take it as a physical representation of god giving himself to you and loving you